0: There's no one like our God. We will praise you. Praise you. There's no one like our God. We will sing. We will sing. There is no one like our God. We will praise you. Praise you. There's no one like our God. We will sing. We will sing. Lord desperately. We need to remember again that there's no one like you. There's nothing like you. Lord, that you are the one who satisfies our souls, that you are the one who we were made to know and enjoy and walk with. God, as we open your word today, we just long to see you as the God that you are, long to be reminded again how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are, how much we need you and everything you've done to draw us back into life with yourself. God, we come humbly longing to to taste of you, to drink deeply of you. So as we open your word, we ask that you would meet us here. God, reveal yourself to us. God, would your Holy Spirit show us the beauty of your face as we look at your word? We submit now, longing for you, needing you, hungry for you. It's in Jesus' name we worship and pray. Amen. Maybe seated as you're taking a seat, I want to invite you to just open your Bible there to Psalm 114. Psalm 114, where we're going to be spending our time today. Uh, I wonder how often uh, you stop to consider <clears throat> what the goal of your life is. What the goal of your life is. Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, maybe you just kind of get living and the days roll on and, and it almost just feels like you're, you're living because you are and you're not really sure where you're headed, why you're headed that direction. But when you stop and you slow down and you think about it, what is the goal of your life. What is the aim of your life? What is your desired outcome? What's the target on the wall? Uh, one, of, one of our favorite TV shows in our house is The Amazing Race. Uh, these people are given this opportunity to, to go all around the world and uh, and they're on they're on this race, and and at every stop they're given a different clue, and the clue is supposed to lead them to some destination. Uh, But it appears to be one of the most frustrating things in the world when this this team of people is frantically running around a city, going everywhere, putting all of their energy towards finding a destination, except here's the problem. They don't know where they're going. They're running all over the place. They're exerting everything within them, but they don't know the destination. And and I would uh, suggest that many times that is exactly how life is being lived by us. That we are, we are trying really hard. We are putting everything into it. We are exerting all of our energy. We are going somewhere, but we're, we're not actually sure where we're headed. Uh, we're, not actually, we're not actually sure what the goal is that we're trying so hard to get to. Uh, in our psalm this morning, Psalm 114, uh, there's two questions that, that sort of converge together in this psalm. The first question is, what is the goal of life? And then the second question is, and how do we get there? So, so what is the goal of life? And then how do we get there? Uh, this world tells us that the goal of our life should be whatever we want it to be. This world tells us that, it, that you and I ought to set the agenda for our lives and then we ought to do whatever it takes to follow our dreams. But one of the saddest moments um, in the show, in The Amazing Race, one of the saddest moments for me, you're watching the show. Sometimes what will happen is the contestants will race and race and race, and, the, and they'll go, get to the final destination. They'll, they'll land on the mat, but the host, Phil, will look at them, and he'll say, I'm sorry, but you actually did not complete the assignment. Uh, they, they, they raced so hard. They, they gave it everything they had. But instead of getting to the end and hearing congratulations, they get to the end only to be Disappointed. And the reality is, guys, this is, just, this is just the hard reality that many, many people will live their lives thinking they were running a good race, live their lives thinking, oh, I set these uh, dreams for myself, I set up these goals for myself, and I accomplished these dreams and these goals, and yet they will get to the end and realize that they had totally missed the very purpose that they were made for. They will miss the very existence that God had created them for. And see, and see that's just it. We can't create meaning for ourselves any more than we could have created ourselves. No, if there is a God who made us, if there is a God who created us, if we are his creatures and he is our creator, it means that he sets the agenda for our lives. He actually knows what is best for us, and rightly so. That, That true life is actually found when we come up underneath his idea of what life is all about. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 114, we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider the goal, the obstacles, and the power. In other words, the goal of life what is the goal of life? What are the obstacles to experiencing that goal? And then what, are the, what is the power to overcome those obstacles? And so, first, today, first, the goal. The goal. Life in God's presence. The goal. Life in God's presence. So, Psalm 114, verses 1 and 2 say this. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Uh, The second book of the Bible is the book of Exodus, and it describes a historical situation where God's people Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God rescued them out in a mighty and miraculous way. And what it says here in verse two is that the reason that God brought them out, the reason he rescued them was that they might become his sanctuary, that, that, that God might make his house in them, that they might come to live life in the presence of God. And that, and that opens up for us the purpose that, for, for which you and I exist. The, the reason that God rescued Israel out of Egypt was to demonstrate to us why we are alive. We are alive to walk out our days, to enjoy life in the presence of God, to become His sanctuary, to become His house, if you will. And this is what I want to do. I want to briefly walk through some passages in the Bible to demonstrate that living in God's presence, in fact, is the goal of life. And here, at the beginning, I just want to summarize for you what we're going to see. I want to summarize it, and then I want to unpack it for you. So, So here's what we're going to see. What we're going to see is that God originally made people to live life in His presence, but then people rebelled against God, and so they were kicked out of life in God's presence. But then first, in the Exodus, God showed a picture of what it would look like for Him to rescue His people and bring them back into His presence to become His sanctuary. But ultimately, what we're going to see is how that pointed forward to Jesus Christ, who would be the one who would bring God and man back together. And then we're going to see how God actually, just like He made a sanctuary in Israel, He makes a home inside of anyone who puts, puts their trust in Jesus. How? By sending His very Spirit to live in them. And that's what we're going to see. So let's walk, work through some passages. Uh, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God makes Adam and Eve, the first, the first human beings, And he places them in a garden. And in this garden, God has provided everything they need. He's given them everything they could ever imagine, everything they could ever want. And what we see in in chapter 3, even though they fall and rebel against God, we see something in chapter 3 that alerts us to just how close, just how intimate life with God was. This is Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God coming among the trees of the garden. What this means is that Adam and Eve were living life with God. See, when when Adam and Eve sinned and then God showed up, the reason they were hiding from his presence wasn't because an intruder had showed up. It was because they were so embarrassed that the God who they knew so intimately that they had sinned against him. The reason they hid isn't because they didn't know who God was. The reason they hid is because they did know who God was and they had just rebelled against Him. And so the consequence for their sin, the consequence for rebelling against God was to be kicked out of the garden. But but, but them being removed from the garden really just symbolized the fact that they were no longer living in His presence. They were no longer enjoying life where they were supposed to be. And this has been the case for Everyone who has ever lived since. Uh, maybe you're here today and, and maybe at times you wonder why life doesn't make sense. Uh, maybe it seems to you that, that there's just this, this, this longing in you for something more, something different, something better, but, but life just never seems to satisfy, never seems to land. Well, The reason why is because you and I were made for life in God's presence. And the dysfunction that we see in our societies and the dissatisfactions that we have in our souls, they come from the fact that we were made to be connected to the heart of God. And yet because of our sin, we are separated from him because we rebelled against him. We aren't living life as it was meant to be lived. We are spoiled. We are rotten from the inside out. From the moment we are born into this world, there is something wrong. I had this uh, really bad habit of picking up the groceries but forgetting them in my trunk when I get to the house. Um, You know, you, you pick them up you know, you're checking off the box of the errand, but then your mind just starts running on other things, or you start listening to something, or you make a phone call, and then I just walk into the house, and then a few hours goes by, and, you know, Allie will walk up to me, and she'll say, you know, hey, you know, didn't I ask you to pick up the groceries? And my heart just sinks. You know, there's some things that can survive in your car for three or four hours, uh, but there's some things like milk and yogurt and eggs and stuff like that, that in a hot summer day in my trunk, like, it is no bueno. We do, we, we do not want to bring those into the house. Why? They're spoiled. They're rotten. There are certain things that, that can only survive in the correct environment. That, that when they're taken out of the environment that they need to live, they are spoiled. They are rotten. And that is exactly what has happened to us. We were made to live in the environment of God's presence. We were made to be in relationship to Him. And so when we are dislocated from His presence, when we are separated from the environment of living with Him, we are spoiled. We are rotten. The reason that we feel broken, the reason that life doesn't make sense is because we're not where we're supposed to be. Or better yet, we're not with who we are supposed to be with. But then... In the book of the Exodus, the second book of the Bible, which is what our psalm is all about today, Psalm 114 is all about the Exodus. God gives us this picture. He gives us this foretaste of what His plan is for the world. God goes in and He rescues Israel and He brings them out to to become His sanctuary, to live in His presence. Here's just one verse from Exodus, Exodus 29, 46, that describes the purpose of the Exodus. It says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt? Why? That I might dwell among them. So as we already noted, God's purpose was to make a home, to make a sanctuary out of this people. Uh, but that, that is what makes it so powerful. When later the Apostle John says this about Jesus. In John chapter 1 verse 14, the Apostle John writes, "And the word became flesh." And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is, he's saying what what Israel foreshadowed, what their temple and their house of God was meant to point forward to, was the fact that there would actually be a person, this man, Jesus Christ, who would be the true temple of God. Why? Because he, at the very same time as he was man, was the very same time, very God of very God. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God and man are brought back together again. And then Jesus would go on to live a perfect life. He would die on the cross in the place of sinners and he would rise from the dead. Why? What is he doing? Why do we celebrate Jesus and his death and his resurrection? Because he is on a mission to bring us back into God's presence. And then the Apostle Paul picks up on Jesus' teaching... And he actually shows that not only was Jesus the temple, but when someone places their faith in Jesus, they become the temple. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Uh, There's sort of a misconception about this whole idea of your your body being the temple. Uh, It's not not anyone everywhere who, who has always been a temple just because they have a body. No, no, no. The reason that someone's body becomes a temple is when they become a Christian and God gives them His Holy Spirit, now they become a temple. Your body becomes a temple because God takes up residence inside of you. Just as Israel became God's sanctuary, God's people who put their trust in Jesus become His sanctuary. Uh, If you want to have some fun this afternoon, I want you to go home and Google person living in the attic. Now, here's why this will be so funny. You will be shocked by how many stories there are of people who have snuck into other people's houses and begun to live in their attic. For weeks, you'll read stories of people who for weeks heard footsteps before they actually went up and looked, and it was only after clothes started missing and dishes started moving around with, with, them, with him having no expl- explanation for how the dishes got moved around. Why do I say this? Two reasons. One, it is so sad that as Christians, as people who have God living in us, at times we live as though He's not there. We close our ears to the footsteps And we don't want to act like God is actually with us, in us. But then here's the other thing. If God is in us, if he has taken up residence in us, if his spirit is living within us, there should be evidence. Just like if someone were to somehow move into your attic without you knowing it, at some point there would be evidence that another human being was living in your house. At some point it would be obvious that someone else was there. And what we're seeing is that if If God has come to live in us, if His Spirit lives in us, there there ought to be evidence that if Jesus has taken up residence in us, then our character ought to slowly be forming into His image. Um, I've got two concerns this morning, uh, one for our culture and one for our church. Here's my concern for the culture. What we're witnessing as as we look around and we see what feels like the chaos and just confusion is... Millions and millions of people who are living without knowing what their true purpose is. Living without realizing that the very reason they were made was to live with God. And and, and we know there's a problem. Everybody knows there's a problem. And yet we look for the solutions in all the wrong places. We look for the solutions in, in, in all of these horizontal ways. Rather than realizing that the one truth fix that we need is actually vertical. It's actually to know God. It's to know Him. And and when you and I don't know our purpose, we start to do all sorts of weird and harmful things. We hurt ourselves. We hurt other people. Why? Because we're trying to satisfy the longings of our heart. We're trying to get something that will make us feel alive. And yet what we see time and time again is that it can only come through a relationship with God. But it's not just the culture. It's not just the confusion, the chaos the disruption we see around us, we have to be willing to to say there might be concern within the church. Would we honestly say that living life in God's presence is our highest priority? That knowing Him, that having a relationship with Him, that walking with Him is most important to us. Might we say that The church is spoiled because we've lost our purpose. We've lost what is most important. We've lost what God made us for. I don't know about you, but I have to be reminded constantly about God's goal for my life. I have to be reminded constantly that what He wants for me more than anything is to live in His presence. And so what I actually have to do, I have to set aside special time with God. I have to set aside special time with God so that I can be reminded that all of my life is meant to be lived with Him. Here's how this, here's how this works. Um, if, if Allie, my wife, came up to me and, and she said, hey, I'd like to go on a date. And I said, well, uh, didn't we do the dishes together last night? And, and didn't we put the toys away in the same room yesterday? And didn't we sleep in the same bed last night? And didn't we go out to dinner with my parents last weekend? Doesn't that count? Well, you know, technically we were side by side. Technically we were in the same room. Technically we're kind of next to each other doing the same things. But what we need is we need face-to-face time. We need undistracted, non-multitasking connection. And then when we enjoy that, when we have that face-to-face, undistracted connection, it makes all the other things sweeter. It makes all the other things better. And that's exactly why we need unique, separate, devoted time with God as well. That we need, to, we need to have face-to-face, non-distracted, non-multitasking time with God. So that then when we walk out of that separated, special time, knowing Him in all of our life becomes sweeter, becomes more real, becomes more felt. That we actually sense His presence with us all the time because we took special time. Here as a church, we don't, we don't have a big staff. We, we just have a small, a small group of us that, that work here at the church. Uh, but once a month, we actually take a meeting that we normally always have, and we cancel it. We take those few hours, we cancel that meeting, and we spread out, and we all just go spend time with God. Why? Why do we do that? Well, a couple reasons. One is this, because ministry is a poor substitute for God himself. Doing things for God is a poor substitute for actually enjoying Him face to face. But here's the other reason we do that. Because if we're not enjoying God, if we're not seeing the goal of our lives as more fundamentally, even more fundamentally than what we do for God, if we're not most fundamentally seeing our lives as about enjoying Him, then what we do for Him will be powerless. What we do for Him will be lifeless. What we do for Him will be empty. And so we actually set aside time just like that. And we, need, we have to do that. Because we all get busy. We all get run around doing lots of good things. But we have to, once a month, we we, we pull back and we just get alone with God. Because it's the goal of life. So, God rescues Israel out of Egypt to make them His sanctuary, to make them His home. And this shows us what the goal of life is, is to live in His presence. Uh, But we have to be honest about the fact that there are lots of obstacles to life in His presence. And that, that leads us, secondly, this morning, to the obstacles Many things too great for us. Many things too great for us. Uh, Just as the Exodus teaches us what the goal of life is, the Exodus also teaches us what the obstacles are to that goal. What the obstacles are to life in God's presence. And I just want to highlight five of them. So as we work through the rest of Psalm 114, uh, we'll look at these five obstacles to life in God's presence. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to kind of camp out, continue to camp out on verses 1 and 2 because they're so important. Verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read it again. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The first obstacle to life in God's presence, which is represented by Israel's slavery in Egypt, is our slavery to sin. Our slavery to sin. In the same way that the nation of Israel was enslaved to Egypt, every person who is born into this world is a slave to sin. What does that mean? It means that we cannot help but go against what God wants for us. We are stuck with no ability to change ourselves, fix ourselves, rehabilitate ourselves. We are stuck with a bent that goes against what God would have for us. Uh, How many times have you heard somebody when, you know, somebody gives an excuse for something and and the excuse they give is they say, "I, I couldn't help it just couldn't help it. Uh, I'm not particularly somebody who likes heights. Um, I don't know why. When I'm on the ground, I think I like heights, but then when I get up high, I find out that I don't like heights. You know, I'll get all psyched up to climb a ladder or do something, you know, do something on the roof or something like that. And, and it's like, as I, as I get about three or four rungs up, it's like something takes over me. I, I don't like it about myself, but my body just starts to shake and I just can't control it. It, it takes over me. Guys, this is what it's like when we're born into this world. We are born into this world, slaves to sin. We are born into this world unable to do the right thing, unable to love God, unable to not be selfish, to not make life about us. That is our default. And so what this psalm is celebrating, it's celebrating a God who rescues people, a God who takes people who are in slavery and brings them out. And what that means is that you and I need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We need to be brought out of the slavery of our sin. And how is it that God rescued Israel? How is it that he brought them out? God sent the death angel to Egypt. And guess what? The death angel would have killed the sons of Israel just as fast as it would have killed the sons of Egypt if it weren't for one thing. God gave them a substitutionary sacrifice. God gave them a lamb. And He said, if, if, if you will put trust in me, this lamb will cover your house. And because it died, you won't. What was the point of that? What was the picture? Well, that was pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who, who is the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, who dies in the place of sinners. Why? Because you and I deserve death for our sin. For our rebellion against God, we deserve death. But Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Why? So that we can be brought out, so that we can be rescued. Yes, both from the penalty, what we owe for our sins, but then we can also be brought out of the tyranny of our sin. That God changes our hearts so that we are no longer stuck in disobedience. See, what we don't realize about sin, what I mean, what we don't realize about rebelling against God, is that when we are enemies of God, we are simultaneously enemies of ourself. That if the goal of life is to enjoy life with God and sin separates us from God, then to sin against Him, to rebel against Him, to turn against Him is actually to be an enemy of ourself. That's why there's nothing that displays God's grace more than to rescue sinners from the slavery of their sin. Think about it. We rebelled against Him. We turned away from Him. We put the stiff arm in his face, and then he comes to us and brings us back to himself. The one that we offended, he takes our offense onto himself in order to fix the relationship. So this morning, if you're here and you are a Christian... It means that at one point in your life, you were stuck. You were dead in your sins. You could not help but go against God's will, and he came into your life, and he rescued you. He changed your heart. He transformed you from the inside out so that you could actually love him. And if you're somebody here and you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you there's there's no fixing yourself. You cannot get yourself out of slavery. You cannot bring yourself to the point where you love God and want to do what he says. So what do you do? All you can do is cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy to a God who is merciful and He has demonstrated it in that He sent Jesus to die for sinners. And you cry out to Him and He alone changes the heart. He alone breaks the the hardened will. He alone brings us out of slavery where we can know Him, enjoy Him, and walk with Him. The second obstacle to life in God's presence which is represented by the Egyptian people, but more particularly Pharaoh, is the dominion of Satan. The dominion of Satan. Uh, Notice how in Psalm 114.1 it says this, when Israel went out from Egypt, here's the key phrase, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Now, I'm not saying that uh, that Satan somehow equals Pharaoh or something like this, but I'm just saying that in, in a way Pharaoh represented Satan. In that he had uh, control and slavery over Israel, he was harsh and demeaning to the people, and he was even the murderer of people. Pharaoh was a murderer of children, and in that sense, he is a representative. He he points us to the dominion of Satan. Now, uh, there's this moment which is recorded in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be suffering and dying on the cross. And Peter doesn't like what Jesus has said. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and Peter rebukes Jesus. And so what happens in return? Jesus rebukes Peter. And here's what he says in Matthew 16, 23. It says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now stop there for a second. What reason would you expect to come after that that phrase? Get behind me, Satan. What kind of qualities would we expect in a person who is satanic? What kind of qualities would we expect in a person who's following Satan? What kind of just utter immorality would we expect in someone who's following the dominion of Satan? But here's what Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, for us to be following Satan, for us to be doing Satan's will, we don't have to be doing some crazy, awful, immoral thing. We don't have to be totally hurting and crushing people all around us. No, 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 no. All we have to be doing to follow the rule of Satan is simply to be focused on ourselves instead of being focused on God. To have our eyes set on us rather than to have our eyes set on God. That's all we have to do. And as Ephesians 2 tells us, we are born into this world following the prince of the power of the air. We are obeying the evil one. The person setting the agenda for our lives is the devil. But I want you to notice something in Psalm one fourteen two, verse 2. I made a big deal out of the sanctuary piece where it says that Judah became his sanctuary, but then, then it adds this phrase. It adds this phrase, and Israel, his dominion. What does that mean? It means when God rescued Israel out of Egypt, yes, he was bringing them out to make his home in them, but he was also bringing them out to take them out from the dominion of Pharaoh and under the dominion of God, that it was to come out of the slavery of the tyrannical ruler, and it was to come up under the servanthood of of a good, loving, faithful, kind God. And what that means for us is that if we were made to live life in God's presence and God is going to rescue us, He has to bring us out from the dominion of Satan where we are following His agenda for our life, where we are following His agenda for the way we think about life. And we are brought up under the good lordship of Jesus Christ. We bow the knee to King Jesus. Because why? Because He knows best. Because he's a good, loving, kind, gracious king. And so it is actually part of the good news. It is part of the reward that we get when God saves us that we have a king, a lord, a new master who is kind, who's benevolent, who's gracious. The third obstacle to life in God's presence, which is represented by the Red Sea, is the certainty of death the certainty of death. I want to read verses 3 through 6. It says, The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skip like rams. The hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? Or Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills like lambs. When Israel comes up out of Egypt, you've got this massive entire group of people that are on their way to the promised land. But guess what happens? The next morning, Pharaoh wakes up and he has changed his mind. And he starts uh, gathering up his army and chasing after Israel. And so here's where they find themselves. On the one hand, they are stuck between a big, huge Red Sea on one side and between an angry army on the other. They have come to the the point of certain death. They have come to the point where there is no way out. They have come to the point where they they are facing death and there is nothing they can do to save themselves. But this psalm, this psalm is all about showing us that God does the impossible God rescues people who have nothing in their future except death I love how there's another place in the Bible where someone begins to taunt inanimate objects right maybe maybe you we first read the psalm you're thinking this kind of interesting right you know talking to the sea oh see what ails you or oh Jordan why do you turn back oh mountains why are you so afraid it's kind of it's kind of interesting right But there's this other place in the Bible where someone else begins to taunt an inanimate object. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, actually begins to taunt death. He talks to death the same way that this psalm talks to the sea and talks to the Jordan and talks to the mountains. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 57 says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul says this. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, just like the people who had crossed through the Red Sea could turn around and say, Yeah, what's wrong, Sea? You know, why'd you turn back? Well, so, so scary about that. Paul is able to look at death, and he says, Death, hey, where's your victory? Where's your sting? What's, what's so scary about you anymore? Why? Because Jesus Christ has conquered death. <laughs> And so he can look at death and we can look at death and we say, hey, what's the big deal? Why, why, are, you, why are you trying to act like you're so scary? No, we, have, we know one, we trust in one who has passed through the waters of death into resurrection life. It's one of the reasons we get so excited about baptism. Baptism is this picture where someone goes down into the water and then they come up and we talk about them dying with Jesus and then being raised to life with Jesus. That when we go up under the water and we come up out of the water, it's just like Israel passing through the Red Sea. It's just like Jesus coming up out of the grave into resurrection life. We celebrate this God who looks at death and laughs. We celebrate this God who allows us to look at death and laugh. Why? As Paul says, because thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth obstacle, which is represented by the Jordan River, Is the fear that grips us, is the fear that grips us. I want to hone in on verse five. It says, What ails you, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back. Uh, So the crossing of the Jordan River and the crossing of the Red Sea are actually two different events. A lot of times we we don't we don't understand this or we, we don't always catch this. That when God brought Israel out of Egypt, He rescued them out of Egypt, they actually crossed two big bodies of water on dry ground, not just one. The first time was at the very beginning when he brought them out and he brought them through the Red Sea. But then right before they actually go into the promised land, they cross the Jordan River on dry land as well. But the crossing of the Jordan River actually communicates a slightly different truth. It's, it's, it's getting at something a little bit different. Why? Because, well, there's not an army chasing them this time and a lot has happened. Forty years has passed since uh, the first generation came up through the Red Sea. So it's communicating something slightly different. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to read in a minute. We're going to read from Joshua, but here's what we see. The nation of Israel was a fearful people, right? They had seen God do all sorts of miraculous things. They had seen God uh, overcome so much, and yet they were still afraid. They were still scared. Uh, After God had brought them through the Red Sea the first time, they actually came right to the edge of the promised land, and they had the opportunity to go in, but they were too afraid. They were too scared. And so 40 years passes. The whole generation of people who doubted, except for two people, they die off. And they come to this point where now they're right back where they were again, where 40 years earlier, their fears had crippled them. Their fears had shut them down. The fears had kept them from entering into the life that God had for them. And this is what I love about our God. He's a God who's so kind that He gives assurance. What we're going to see in a second, we're going to read Joshua chapter 3, and what we're going to see is that here's what God wanted wanted them to feel. He wanted them to remember that if I'm the God who can push back the Jordan River so that you all walk across dry dry ground, then what can't I do? If I'm the God who's going to do this for you, then you can trust that I'll be the God who will do that for you. This is Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. It says, and Joshua said, Here is how you shall know. That's assurance language. Here's how you can know for sure. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, is among you, that that God has actually become your sanctuary, that you become his sanctuary, rather. Here's how you'll know that. And then he adds a second thing that's longer. So get ready. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God knew that this was a fearful people. He knew that 40 years earlier it was fear that had kept them from walking with him, fear that had kept them from trusting him. And so God, in his love, he gives them this token of assurance. There's no other reason to do this miracle. He just wants them to know that if if I've promised you a future, if I've promised you that I will bring you safely home, I'm going to do this so that you know I'll do that. I'm going to do this so that you can absolutely trust me, that there's nothing, there's nothing that can stand against the true and living God. And so here here are you and I. Our lives are full of fears. So many times, the thing that keeps us from enjoying life with God is the fears that cripple us, the things that feel too big for us, that thing in the future that's not even real that we come up with in our head that somehow shuts us down. And so what's the answer to these fears? Well, it's the same thing. God is a God of assurance. He's a God who's made us guarantees. Maybe you're somebody who fears God's judgment. You think to yourself, I know there's this talk about forgiveness, but I just really, really have made some terrible mistakes. And I'm just not sure that I'm going to get to the end and that God is going to welcome me. We hear from our loving Father an assurance like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whew. Maybe you're somebody who fears the future like I was talking about a second ago. There's, just, there's always something ahead that is grabbing your heart, is grabbing your mind, is c- taking hold of your life. But then we hear an assurance from God like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, he's saying in the midst of your fear, when there's something in the future, when there's something that's got you, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If if the God who parts the Red Sea, if the God who holds the Jordan back is for us, then who can be against us? If God was willing to give us His Son to die for us, what will He not give us? How would there be anything in the future that He would allow to take us out if He wasn't willing to spare His own Son for us? Maybe uh, you're somebody who fears, your, your fear comes from your own inadequacies, your own weaknesses. You feel like you're not enough. You feel like you don't have what it takes. You know, that's actually a pretty good place to be, to have a really good sense of our, our weakness, our inadequacies. But We hear an assurance like this from Jesus when he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, yeah, you are weak. You are inadequate. You don't have what it takes. But those gaps that your weakness create, those gaps that your inadequacy create, they actually open up room for my power to shine through. They actually open up room for for me to show off. So don't be afraid of your inadequacies. That's what gives Jesus the opportunity to shine. Maybe this morning um, you're thinking hard about this idea of life in God's presence. And you know that it would be a dramatic change for you to step out of your old way, to step out of your old Egypt, to step out of the slavery of sin, to actually desire and want to come up under a life where God is in control of your life, where He is the Lord of your life. And maybe you're scared of the idea of walking with Him. You're scared of the idea of what life would look like if you actually took Him seriously and, and gave yourself to Him. Here's the assurance that God gives. He says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying, whatever you're afraid of, whatever you're scared of, whatever you think is going to be hard about walking with Jesus, whatever God has planned for you is so much better that you couldn't even imagine it. (laughs) You couldn't even dream it up. No eye seen, no ears heard, no heart could even imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is our God who meets us in our fears with assurance. He doesn't meet us in our fears and taunt us. He doesn't meet us in our fear and belittle us. He doesn't meet us in our fear and ask us, you know, why we're so puny and why we're so weak. No, He meets us in our fears and He, he, he shows us how He is enough. And the fifth obstacle that we see on Israel's journey is represented by Israel's journey through the wilderness, and it is the obstacle of the temptations of the world. The obstacle of the temptations of the world. Verses 7 and 8 say of Psalm, uh, Psalm 114 say, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This last verse alludes to how God cared for his people through their wanderings in the wilderness, that so many times Israel questioned God, but time and time and time again, God proved faithful. So many times, the biggest temptation for Israel was to become too occupied with the cares of this world. They had God with them. They had God with them providing for them every step of the way and yet time and time again all they could think about is where's our next meal coming from? I'm thirsty. It would have been better back in Egypt. And I think we know that we can find ourselves in the exact same place. That this God, he's come, he's rescued us, he's drawn us out of our sin. Maybe maybe you're somebody you can remember what that was like when you first came to know Jesus and it was exciting and you were set free and it was awesome. And then life started to happen and the cares of this world just started to take over. And that view of the goal of life as living with God just more and more and more fell into the background and more and more and more it was the worries of this world. It was where's my next meal, how am I going to provide, how am I going to pay this, how am I going to do this? It creeps in and it, it chokes out life with God. It chokes out enjoying life with Him. So how do we overcome the obstacles of this world? Well, what we see throughout the Bible is that this picture of water coming from the rock, Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it, it's wild. Go back. I would love for you to go check out this chapter later today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul actually says that the water from that rock was Jesus Christ. He's not saying that the water literally was Jesus. That's not what he's trying to say. But what he's trying to say is what the water from the rock was for Israel is what Jesus Christ is for the world. That in our, satisf- in our dissatisfaction, in our longing, in our hunger, in our thirst for things that tempt us to care so much about the things of this world, God gives us someone who is all satisfying. God gives us someone who meets all of our needs. And, and here's the best way to fight temptation. The best way to fight temptation is simply to be full on Jesus Christ. You know, I, I don't know um, how, how you are, but man, when I'm somebody, who, when, I, when I'm in a place where I'm just like really hungry, when I'm like really starving, I am so much more tempted to eat garbage. Like how many times, let, let's, let's all be honest, okay. How many times have we not eaten for five or six hours and then we see something like a donut and we think in the moment, this is what I want, right? This is what I need. And then, as soon as we eat it, we feel awful. And that's exactly how temptation works. Our stomachs are empty, our souls are thirsty, and so we grab at something to fill it. And it just makes things worse. The best way to fight temptation is to be full on Jesus. If I'm when I'm full and I'm brimming over with food and I, don't, I have nothing left in the tank. I see food and it's disgusting. Ugh, I don't want it, you know? Donuts, ugh, get that out of here. When we fill up on Christ and we are satisfied in Him. We no longer need whatever it is that's passing in front, of our, in front of our faces. The cares of this world, they shrink. So, we've seen that there are many obstacles and that these obstacles are too great for us. Right? I mean, they outmatch us. But we've seen that time and time again, we do have hope. We do have hope. And that leads to our final thing this morning. Briefly, briefly and finally this morning, we see the power. What is the power to overcome these obstacles? What is the power to get past the things that stand in the way of enjoying life with God forever? The power is this, that God alone overcomes every obstacle. God alone overcomes every obstacle. That's the point of this whole psalm, is that we get to witness God A God who shows up and the waters part. A God who shows up and the mountains tremble. A God who shows up, there's no water, all we have is rocks. And now the next thing we know, there's water coming up out of the rocks. right? When we look at the slavery of our sin, when we look at the dominion of Satan, we look at the certainty of death. When we look at the fears that cripple us, when we look at the temptations of of this world, guys, we just have to admit it, we're outmatched. We can't do it, we can't overcome these things. What makes us think that we ever could? But then we read a psalm like Psalm 114 and we see God overcoming every obstacle on behalf of His people. God is so committed to getting us back into His presence that He does everything necessary for us. The psalm ends in verses 7 and 8. Tremble, O earth! at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. I don't think what the psalm is saying is, I don't think it's actually pointing that command to tremble at God's people. I think that's for God's people to take up and realize the God who's with us, the God who's for us, the God who's on my side, everything scary in the world trembles at His presence. That He's a God who, who when He's at our side, we can look at the sea and say, What ails you, O.C.? We can look at death and say, hey, death, what's wrong? You know, where did your victory go? Where did your sting go? Why? Because here's a God who's unstoppable, a God who's undefeatable. So what should we do? Three things in response this morning. If God alone overcomes every obstacle, three things. First, we ought to trust God completely. We ought to trust God completely. If he's the one, If He's the one that can do it and we can't, if He's the one who has the power and we don't, then we trust Him completely. Here's uh, two scenarios where, where we're called to trust God. One is when we sin. When we sin. We learn a lot about who and what we trust when we sin. When we step outside of God's law, when we go against His command... Do we feel like we have to make it right with him? Do we feel like we have to beat ourselves up before we come back into his presence? Do we feel like it's our responsibility to fix our debt with God? And what we see all throughout the scripture is guys, we can't. We could never do enough, we could never take enough lashes. But there is a Savior. And He's all-sufficient. And what it looks like to actually trust Him completely is when we sin, it is to turn to Him and say, Jesus, I trust that You're enough. I trust that what You've done makes me right with God, not anything I could do. That Your death in my place is all that I would ever need to absolve my guilt before a holy God. But it's not just when we sin, it's also when these moments of fear come up when life gets scary, when things seem to be falling apart all around us, when the world seems in upheaval, when our own heart and our own mind go crazy, do we look and see a God who parts the seas? A God who's given us every assurance. I mean, that would have been really cool to see the, to see the river pushed back that way. But can you beat someone rising from the dead? This is our God. There is nothing in the future that could overtake his people. There's nothing in the future that could change our incredibly bright future in Jesus Christ. A second thing uh, beyond trusting God completely is that we ought to obey God fully. We ought to obey God fully. If God has rescued us from slavery to sin, if God has rescued us out from under the dominion of Satan, if at one point in our life we were following Satan's agenda, we were Living in stuck disobedience, and he came in and he rescued us and he pulled us out of that. We ought to love God's commands. We ought to love his rule. We ought to love the fact that we now have one over us who is good and right and kind and benevolent. That if he says go, then the best thing for us to do is to go. If he says to wait, then the best thing for us to do is to wait. If he says to forgive, then the best thing for us to do is forgive. If he says to sacrifice, then the best thing for us to do is to sacrifice. If this God really has rescued us from the dominion of sin, if he's rescued us out from the slavery that we were under, then we ought to want to obey him. We ought to see obeying him as our joy, as our delight, as our privilege. And then finally this morning, probably the most important thing that I'll say or hope you hear me say is that we ought to abide in God consistently, abide in Him consistently. So we trust Him, we obey Him, but then we abide. What does that mean? Well, guys, it's great that God has made His home in us. It's great that He has given His Spirit to us, that if we've turned and we've put our trust in Jesus, that that He's come and He's living in us. But moment by moment, we now have the opportunity to then abide in Him, to rest in Him, to make our home in Him to carve out special time with Him and then out from that special time with Him to see every single moment of our life lived in His presence. To abide in Jesus. It's our our best hope against temptation. It's our best hope against the fears of this world. It's our best hope to make it through this life. But more than anything, more than anything, to abide in Jesus, to abide in Him, to live in Him, to rest in Him, to remain in Him is the goal of life. It's what we were made for. So let's run after it. Let's pray. Lord, how many times have I traded you for a cheap substitute? How many times have I thought that I could find life somewhere else? But God, this morning you have shown us that our lives are meant to be lived with you. Our lives are meant to be satisfied in you. And God, we celebrate the fact that you have done everything for us to overcome every obstacle to life with you. So we praise you. We lift you up. And we ask that you would just impress deeply in our souls that the best Portion in life is to walk with you, to enjoy your presence, to know you intimately and closely. That is the cry of our heart, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.